0: hello and welcome to scream scene the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to
1: worst i'm ben and i'm sarah thanks for listening to us today how are
0: you doing sarah
1: i've been better
0: yeah for sure It's been a week. It's been a rough week. I want to take this time to talk about something really quickly. Oh, okay. So about a month ago, a friend of mine said to me that I was the most put-together person he knows. Like, I am am super put-together. And that took me aback because I would have thought it would have been obvious to anyone who's close friends with me that I have... Issues with depression and anxiety and other unidentified mental health issues. And it really spoke home to me about how invisible mental health issues can be.
1: Mm.
0: How, you know, you can know someone and think they're the most put-together person you know when really they've been suffering with depression and anxiety and um, other issues for... Uh, 17 years. So I just wanted to take a moment to say that, like, these sorts of problems, you know, can go untreated for so long because they seem invisible. But, like, if you have problems with mental health issues in your life, it's okay to tell people about them. It's okay to seek help and seek treatment for them. Like, it doesn't make you you know, a weaker person to seek out help for these problems in the same way that like, if you had a broken leg, it wouldn't make you weak to get a cast for them. Like, you know, um, I am five months into being on a regimen of antidepressants. I'm about three months into a course of cognitive behavioral therapy and I've made a ton of progress
1: And I'm super proud of you.
0: And I'm doing a lot better than I ever have in years. And it's been really helpful for me recently because, like, I really don't know how I would have dealt with some recent events if I hadn't finally taken the plunge of doing something to help myself and help, you know, my state of being. So you know, if you struggle with these problems or suspect you might struggle with these problems, like, you know, look into what's available for you to get help for these issues and, you know, look into getting help and getting assistance, um, whether that's through medication or through counseling or therapy. And like, I understand that like a lot of our listeners are in the United States where reasonable health care is often less accessible or next to impossible to access affordably. So, you know, do the research and find out what's available to you and what's reasonable for you to look into um, if you have these problems. I I really highly highly recommend it because the difference in my life between what it was like before and what it's like now is very noticeable. And I'm much better off for it. So, you know, I just thought that maybe if any of our listeners have these kind of struggles that maybe hearing from someone that like, yeah, going and seeing a therapist or going and getting antidepressants like is actually helpful. It's not just like, I don't know, a scam. So that was just something I wanted to talk about, Sarah. Yeah. Um,
1: that's totally fine. Like, yeah, we talk about scary movies, but life is scary. and, (laughs) And we're talking about how to make it manageable.
0: Yeah. Life is scary. Um, Speaking of which, times are tough here at Castle Scream Scene. (laughs) So um, if you enjoy the show, if you appreciate hearing the podcast every week, head on down to patreon.com slash Podcast, and you can sign up to become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. To all of our current patrons, we appreciate you very much and thank you so much for your support.
1: Yeah, it... It really means a lot, A, that people subscribe and listen to us each week, but also, B, that people are willing to support us and able to support us, um, even if it's at the dollar a month amount. It's just kind of mind-boggling that people are like, yeah, cool.
0: Yeah, every little bit helps. If you're a long-time listener or even a new listener and you're a, a big fan and if you've been on the fence maybe about joining the Patreon in the past, um, now is a great time to do it, just to help, you know, mortar up some of the crumbling battlements of Castle <laughs> Scream scene, get some of those uh, long-sought-after foundational repairs Ooh. so that it doesn't sink into the Transylvanian bogs. There are no Transylvanian yeah, bogs. Yeah. You, you're giving me a look. And, yeah. Yeah, I mean... Bogs
1: are like in Scotland...
0: Yeah, I mean. No, that's
1: Moors. The Moors <laughs> of Scotland.
0: It, we don't want our castle to fall off the edge of the Carpathian Mountains because right, the yeah. foundation is crumbling. So. I
1: don't want anyone to be panicking. I was let go for my job. That's what happened. But, like, if anything, that means we'll have more time for Scream Scene. More time to dedicate to things.
0: We're all right. Yeah. We're doing all right. But if you could, um, take this time to support us on Patreon, it would be very appreciated. And once again, a huge thank you to everyone who already does so.
1: Yeah, we love all of you. That was a very tender start to the show. What are we watching today? Will this tender feeling, this warm, fuzzy feeling in my heart, in my bosom, continue?
0: I mean, if you want to, like, switch gears and go hard for the rest of the show, we can do that. This week, we are watching The Dark Eyes of London from 1939, starring Bella Lugosi, and it is based on the novel The Dark Eyes of London uh, by Edgar Wallace, and I, I, I'm under the impression that he's kind of a big deal.
1: He's a really
0: big deal. So what's the big deal with Edgar Wallace, Sarah?
1: So, Ben, I want you to
0: imagine
1: <laughs> it's the turn of the century.
0: All right, I've got my stovepipe hat and my cane and my monocle.
1: Yeah, it's 1905. Okay. And you are struggling with debt.
0: Ah, I shouldn't have bought that horseless carriage.
1: Yeah, that investment was poor. Mm-hmm. Um, so you decide to make some quick coin by writing some fiction. Right,
0: the easiest way to make money fast, that classic get-rich-quick scheme becoming an author.
1: And you turn into one of the most prolific English writers ever. I
0: mean, makes sense. If you're writing for the money, then it's volume. <laughs> you know, it's volume over, quali- over, over quality.
1: But it does kind of sound too good to be true, right? This
0: is a, an unusual origin story okay. for a writer, I think.
1: Uh, well, it's the origin story of Edgar Wallace. Okay. He was born Richard Horatio, Edgar Wallace, in 1875.
0: (laughs) That's a dope name. That name's like, I am English, 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 Englishman. Yeah. Basically.
1: Uh, And he was born on April Fools. (laughs) He joined the military uh, and hated being in the military, so he transferred to the press corps. Okay. Then he worked as a war correspondent for the Second Boer War Mm -hmm. at 21 years old. Wow. He started first with writing poetry and songs in 1898 after meeting Rudyard Kipling. Oh. And from publishing these, to journalism, to detective thrillers, all just to make some coin, Wallace would, in the end, publish 18 stage plays, 957 short stories, over 170 novels, screenplays, and historical nonfiction. Holy shit! Yeah. That's a lot. Guy was cranking them out. In one year he wrote 12 novels. In a single fucking year. What the what the hell? I mean, yeah. How? Listen, the t- the expenses on
0: the typewriter ribbon alone.
1: <laughs> this novel, The Dark Eyes of London, was published in 1924, and it's actually pretty early in his career all told. Wallace had signed with Hodder and Stoughton in 1921. Uh, so only three years prior. Previously, he had just sold stories off to magazines or one-off books to publish. Um, but with this contract with the publisher, he had more financial security because he would get advances, royalties, and your books would actually get a lot more marketing and publicity. Yeah, for sure. And they used the moniker King of Thrillers. <laughs> so he was already pretty well known by yeah, this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The crime novel... Dark Eyes of London, came from an earlier short story called The Croakers, (laughs) and it follows Inspector Holt, no relation to Captain Holt of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and it follows him as he solves a series of murders. And there's thrills, adventure, and romance along the way. It's a pulp thriller. Okay. a crime pulp thriller.
0: The Croakers sound like it could be like a CGI DreamWorks movie about like a family of toads.
1: By the end of the novel, we uncover that a mad doctor and his brother are scamming wealthy men by getting them to uh, change their life insurance policies to leave everything to a charity for the blind. Hence okay. the Dark Eyes of London. Oh. Uh, And then... The Mad Doctor and his brother murder the men Mm -hmm. and take all the money because the charity's a friend.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. (laughs) So you said this was a crime novel. Yes. So do you figure the horror connection's just the Mad Doctor trope? Yes. Okay.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is not the first time we've seen a thriller detective novel story turned into a horror or horror-adjacent-type film.
0: For sure. It's, it's sort of, like, interesting because the whole thing of, like, having a doctor who convinces you to put all of your insurance in their name and then kills you is, like, not an outrageous premise. That's a thing that's happened to people. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So this is in 1924. hmm In a few years, Wallace would be appointed chairman of the British Lion Film Corporation... Oh, wow. ...in exchange for them getting first option on film adaptations of his work. Of which, you know, this work, it, it lent itself very well to, quota quickies with the whole pulp crime... Yeah. ...thriller genre. Yeah. Wallace actually directed a couple of these films. Oh. Both in 1930. Uh, first... The Squeaker, and later that same year, Red Aces. Okay. He wrote screenplays around this time as well. For example, he wrote 1932's The Hound of the Baskervilles for Gainsborough Pictures. Alright. Okay. So that's like 1930. In 1931 he emigrated to the US where he continued his work with screenplays, and he actually worked as a script doctor for RKO. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons why Edgar Wallace is so well-known, mm-hmm. um, even with this prolific bibliography is he is one of the writers credited for the story of King Kong. Okay, cool. He had started work on the script for King Kong in 1931, Um, but if you know your films, you know King Kong came out in 1933. Mm -hmm. Um, Part of that is the special effects work taking a long time, Uh, but Edgar Wallace had health difficulties and was diagnosed with diabetes in January nineteen thirty two. Oh. Um, so this is still with an earlier draft of King Kong. And his condition worsened so quickly that he died the following month, in February nineteen thirty two, at fifty six years old.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, so it's kinda like you go undiagnosed for so long that as soon as it hits you it's like, well
0: Sure, yeah, absolutely. So he, he only wrote the first draft
1: then? Pretty much, yeah.
0: Okay. And then other people came in and and finished it?
1: My understanding, yeah. It's also kind of amazing to think, you know, he's 56 years old, but he was so prolific in what he wrote. Mm -hmm. Like I said, he wrote 12 novels in a single year Mm -hmm. at one point. But when he comes into this podcast right now is with his 1924 novel, The Dark Eyes of London.
0: Yeah. So this version... Of the Dark Eyes of London is definitely a horror movie and you know came about because of as we've been talking about recently the return of the horror genre to prominence and that renewal of the genre was certainly a godsend for Bela Lugosi, uh, affording him a revival of what was becoming a dying career for him at a very crucial time Namely, the first few years of his young son's life. Uh, Bela Lugosi Jr. having been born in 1938. The last time we saw Bela Lugosi was Son of Frankenstein. And Lugosi's next film after that was The Gorilla. An adaptation of the 1925 Old Dark House play that the ape had been a rip-off of. Oh, and then the yeah. ape got made into the movie House of Mystery. Yeah. Uh, the Gorilla play had been made into movies before this, but all of the earlier versions are lost, which is why we didn't watch them. As for why we didn't watch this version, it's because this adaptation turned the play into a comedy in order to showcase the Ritz brothers, who were 20th Century Fox's version of, say, the Marx Brothers or the Three Stooges. Uh, appearing in the movie with Lugosi was Lionel Atwill, it was sort of a smart choice for Legosi in that it was a film that was in his wheelhouse, but also an attempt to reinforce that he could do other genres, mm-hmm. which was something that his agent was really trying to work hard on, um, was getting Legosi into other non-horror movies, because it was becoming very clear, you know, if he was tied to one genre and that genre wasn't popular, that's it for him. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, Legosi's role in the movie is actually very small. He's just the butler in, like, The Mansion... That okay. the movie's set
1: in. That's better than I thought it was going to be. I thought he was going to end up playing the gorilla. Huh.
0: Yeah, it was just kind of the typical thing of like... Like we saw in Night of Terror of giving Legosi a small role, but like heavy billing on the posters. Yeah. The film was a failure. Uh, the gorilla was not well received. Sure. But Legosi did manage a coup with his next film where he actually managed to get a straight dramatic role in MGM's Ninochka, starring Greta Garbo. However, after that, he was right back to the horror genre for The Dark Eyes of London, sailing to England to star in the film, as this is a British movie. (laughs) Sorry, it's a what? A British movie. Okay. (laughs) So, The Dark Eyes of London was produced by John Argyle through his Argyle Films production company, is. Maker
1: of sweaters and films. That's
0: right. Uh, no, no relation. Um, and it was directed by Walter Summers. Uh, the film was adapted from Edgar Wallace's novel by uh, both of those two men, uh, as well as two other writers. So four writers total on this screenplay. Walter Summers, the director, was born in eighteen ninety-two to a family of actors, and served in World War One, and then signed on with. Producer-director George Samuelson, after the war, initially as a writer. He directed his first feature film in 1923, soon breaking off from Samuelson to find success on his own. Through the 1930s, he made several well-regarded films, reaching sort of a peak of his career at the end of the decade, with Premiere in 1938, Traitor Spy and Dark Eyes of London in 1939, and At the Villa Rose in 1940. Shooting on the film began the day after Lugosi's arrival in England and lasted 11 days in April of 1939. The film would be released in November of 1939 and earned the H rating from the BBFC for horrific content.
1: All right, that's already a step above Todd Slaughter's stuff. For sure. So... Okay, I'm, I'm getting more in- invested.
0: Uh, now, while later imported horror films would continue to earn the H rating from the BBFC, this film would be the last homegrown British feature to receive that rating. Oh. Um, as British producers backed away from horrific content movies almost as soon as the trend began possibly due to the fact that on September 3rd, 1939, the United Kingdom declared war on Nazi Germany in response to the Nazi invasion of Poland.
1: Ooh, so this film is coming in like two months, a month and a half after that?
0: Yeah, t- basically two months into the war, um, yeah. having been made before the war. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, and yeah, it was just once the war began, you know, British producers went into either making propaganda Or escapism but like horror not so much yeah right although they did continue to import American horror content Uh, with the war starting up uh, Summers would re-enlist reactivating his World War One Commission Uh, after his return from the war he lost interest in the motion picture industry and left uh, passing away in
1: 1973 okay so, how did this film fare for audiences now that, like, they're in the war?
0: Well, Dark Eyes of London, despite much controversy over its horrific content in Britain, uh, was actually a mild success uh, in the country. So, it, okay. did, it did fairly well, but there was a lot of eyebrows raised about the content. Uh, and because it was that, you know... Respectable success in the UK, it was picked up for release in the United States by Monogram Pictures, uh, the B-movie company, under the new title, The Human Monster, in March of 1940. Okay. And the funny thing is, um, the movie begins, like the first shot is this shot of Tower Bridge in London, and then these like superimposed... Bell Lugosi eyes coming oh. right out at you and like looking over the city, and then the title, The Dark Eyes of London, appears. And it it's a little funny because in the American version, like they had to sort of freeze frame on the eyes right before the title comes up, and then they, you know, put in the American title, The Human Monster, and then keep going, so it doesn't quite doesn't quite work as well.
1: Yeah. Especially because From the story, I think the Dark Eyes of London refers to the blind charity that, like, the mad doctor and his brother are running as a front.
0: I guess we're going to find out. Yeah. So this film is in the public domain, uh, and it can be found on DVD from budget release companies under either the U.S. title or the U.K. title. You kind of see both still hanging around. Um, Under the U.S. title, it is available on the Internet Archive.
1: Okay, well, if you would still like to visit our website, you can go to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You will hear a brief musical interlude, and we will be right back after watching The Dark Eyes of London from 1939.
0: A.K.A. The Human Monster. (laughs) From 1940. See you on the other side, everybody.
1: Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Dark Eyes of London slash The, the Human, Human Monster. Monster from 1939-ish, uh, directed by Walter Summers. Ben, what did you think of this movie?
0: I liked this movie a lot. I had yeah. a fun time with it. I thought it was really good.
1: Yeah, I also really enjoyed it. I think this is going to be a really interesting discussion.
0: Yes.
1: Yeah. Something that was kind of neat, at the end of the credits, the film producers put like a special thank you to like the British. The
0: National Institute of the Blind. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, So that makes me curious if the people who we see as blind in the film are actually blind.
0: Maybe. Um, And it might also have meant that like, you know, in the writing of the script or the shooting of the movie, they had like consultants, you know, and, and stuff in.
1: Yeah, maybe borrowing some of the braille machines that you see. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so that was kind of cool. Yeah.
0: So, um, why don't we talk about what happens in this movie?
1: Sure. The film opens with a very grisly montage of finding several bodies in the Thames. Inspector Holt is on the case, and he's joined by American cop Mr. O'Reilly, who's here at Scotland Yard to learn policing...
0: He's from Chicago. He's from the Chicago Police Department. Lieutenant O'Reilly. And
1: boy, do they make some jokes about police brutality.
0: <laughs> American police brutality. Yeah,
1: yes. yeah. <laughs> Which was very like, oh boy. Bela Lugosi plays Dr. Orloff. To add to our collection of Orlac and Orlok mm-hmm. for characters in the horror genre. Mm-hmm. And this is a man who... He could have been a medical doctor if not for his megalomania. Uh So, while he does call himself doctor, he runs an insurance company and is also the benefactor to the Dearborn Home for the Blind, run by Mr. Dearborn. Orloff loans money on the policies uh, to, you know, people who, specifically wealthy men without children, who run into some financial problems and then will quietly off them and then take the money for himself.
0: Yeah, he's it's it's a bit of a complicated insurance scam. Like, they explain it at one point, but it basically comes out to, like, he loans the money, and in exchange, he tells them to, like, put the policies in his name, like, as payback, and then they die, and then he gets, like, this forger to, like, forge his, like, records so that it looks like the policies got paid out to, like, some rando, because obviously, like, you know, it would be very suspicious of, hey, everyone who gets a policy from your company dies, and you're the beneficiary.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it is all explained, but, um, the way that Orloff gets these people murdered is, uh, through this whole home for the blind. He sends messages through Braille to give to basically, at the end of the line, this character named Jake, who is this blind, monstrous-looking fella who looks like someone trying to look like Frankenstein.
0: Yeah, if this movie had been made, like, ten years ago in America, this would have been Boris Karloff.
1: Yeah, like, Boris Karloff with, like, elf ears, and also blind. Yes. Um, Kind of like an orc, a little bit, because he has, like, a jaw (laughs) thing. Anyways...
0: He's just supposed to be a disfigured person. Like, that's... He's not supposed to be, like, some sort of, like, supernatural monster.
1: No, 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 no. Uh, and then Jake goes and murders these people. This whole scheme is going pretty smoothly until Henry Stewart gets offed, and turns out he has a daughter, Diane. Orloff, while being investigated by Holt and O'Reilly, offers Diane a job as a secretary at the Home for the Blind, And there's, you know, twists and grisly scenes abound throughout all of this. Um, At one point, because a blind man, who also is mute, decides he doesn't really want to help with this scheme anymore, Orloff deafens him uh, through this creepy experiment, uh, which is not good, because Jake is best friends with this guy. Through working at the home, Diane discovers some evidence that ties Dearborn, to her father's murder. So she confronts him and, surprise, I thought it was a surprise, it was Orloff in disguise all along, disguising his voice and everything. I thought it was like a neat twist that I was not expecting in the movie. Um, so Holt and Raleigh are rushing in to save Diane from danger. She convinces Jake in the meantime to go after Orloff because he killed Jake's friend. And in this final climactic battle, Orloff is pushed off the balcony into the Muddy Thames. He drowns. Uh, Jake succumbs to bullet wounds from Orloff. And Holt rushes in, gets his girl, solves his case, and O'Reilly heads back to America. The end. Mm -hmm. Presumably the other blind people at the home are taken care of in some sort of manner.
0: We hope, because... I mean, there's no one to run this home anymore, and no one giving money to it anymore, and I mean, otherwise they're just all going to go out on the street. So that's yeah. a weird loose end that I didn't consider when this movie ended. ended. Th- this movie is pretty cool, Sarah.
1: Yeah, I keep using the word grizzly.
0: That's the word that I keep using, too.
1: Because it's not like there's a lot of gore, and there's not a lot of active violence on screen, like there is, but it's not like... A lot? Not by 2018 standards. Totally. Um, but you see a lot of dead bodies. Like, not actual dead, but like, <clears throat> <laughs> movie magic. But you see, like, an autopsy just finishing up.
0: Yeah, there's a level of on-screen depiction of violence and its consequences that we haven't really seen in a movie in a while. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, by 1939 standards, like, we we see people fall off of buildings into the Thames. We see Orloff get sucked under and drown. We see, you know, him electrocuting uh, Lou. And we see, you know, like, we, we just see a lot more. We see the dead bodies. We see the violence. You know, even if it does cut away or cut to black, it cuts to black after showing us the first little bit of it instead of cutting to black, like, before it even begins to happen. We just see a lot more of it than we've really been seeing in movies lately.
1: If you compare how much we see here versus thinking back to Bella's first appearance on the show as Dracula, where we fade to black before his face even makes contact with necks. Yeah. It's it's shocking a little.
0: Yeah, the difference here is like, you know, if Dracula had been done in this style, he would have gotten a bite into the woman, we would have seen that, the woman would have screamed, and we just would have faded to black before she actually, like, died on screen but the violence would be there
1: yeah we might have even seen a trickle of blood Mm -hmm. here and there
0: it's very easy to understand how this movie got an h rating totally um which to remind listeners the h rating for horrific content restricted audiences to those 16 and up regardless of accompaniment so you couldn't get in if you were younger if you had an adult with you which was the difference between h and a uh which was the adult rating so H was kind of like an R, but for like a younger age threshold. Sure. um, It didn't necessarily mean a film of the horror genre so much as it meant horrific content, although it was, of course, created due to the horror genre.
1: Yeah, and I think what's really interesting with this film, which kind of ties in with where you're going here, Mm -hmm. is it's very factual. The majority of the film we're following Holt as he solves this crime, and it's very police procedural. Yes, it feels like you're watching an episode of Law and Order a little bit.
0: Yes, um, while many of the scenes and some of the imagery in this movie fit the bill of horror, I think the wider context of the movie, going by like what takes up the most running time and how the narrative is structured, really shows it to be a police procedural, mm-hmm. like. Which, by the way, was a very new genre at this point. Definitely. Um, private... like this is the
1: first thing we've seen in the films that we've been watching that like comes close. And yeah. this is just exactly it.
0: Yeah. Um, private detective mystery movies were more common in the 30s, even into the 40s. You really didn't get the popularization of the police procedural until the 50s. That being said, there were police procedurals in the 30s and 40s what really had to happen for it to become a more popular genre was for the police themselves to become more popularized in culture, which really Mm -hmm. happened by the fifties. But like Dick Tracy is a police procedural. Yeah. Um, and that's what this is really. I mean, structurally speaking, the dark eyes of London shares a lot more in common with your typical murderer of the week cop show, your CSIs, your NYPD blues, you know, kind of whatever. than it does with, like Dracula. Yeah. You know, like you have the brilliant detectives racing to solve the clues, to stop the fiendish murderer before they can finish their next crime.
1: Yeah, I think what also kind of struck me with this film, especially because we're watching it in the context of how has the horror genre developed, Uh is the filmmaking in the movie isn't even like a film noir type of filmmaking. Uh It's very factual it's very straight on um which i feel like in a weird way in an interesting way underlines the factual nature of the the police procedural despite the actual scheme going on which is quite complex complex and unrealistic i think its approach to the plot i guess is very i keep using the word factual but just very like realistic um given that this is what we were entering this film with the expectation of horror and the style that comes with that, um, I would have expected this to have a bit more style, really. Um, Like, there's some shadows, there's um, some interesting lighting, but it's nothing like... I mean, I keep thinking of, like, The Walking Dead as mm-hmm. the closest example of horror and film noir, but even, like, some of the last British films we saw, like, The Man Who Changed His Mind, mm-hmm. or, um, not quite British, but The Man Who Lived Again, or whatever it's called. Uh, those movies are <laughs> super stylish.
0: <laughs> the, 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 the man they could not hang.
1: The Man They Could Not Hang. It <laughs> was close.
0: The Man... Who Lived Again was the U.S. title for The Man Who Changed His Mind. <laughs> but I see what you mean. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Really only the climax of the movie has those dark shadows and stylish mm-hmm. looks in the lighting that we expect.
1: Or when Jake is attacking. Yes, yeah. He the he turns Jake's... off lights as he goes. Which makes me also wonder if he's, like, not quite completely blind. Actually,
0: I was thinking the idea with that was that it puts him and his opponents on equal footing. Because of, like, a blind... Neither
1: of them can see. Yeah,
0: because if a blind guy is coming at you to kill you and you can see in full light, it's going to be a little bit easy to evade him, right? But if you can get the lights off and everyone's on equal footing, the blind man has the advantage in the dark versus you.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. I feel like the parts of this that still put it in horror is the fact that we see such grisly things on screen. Bela Lugosi. Uh, <laughs> you know, people use him a lot to just, like see, we're horror. Um, so he's just kind of like in that. And then Jake as this disfigured killer.
0: The way that the movie kind of combines that police procedural plot structure with these kind of horror tropes and aesthetics and atmospherics, really what it reminds me of the most is a 1930s version of like the adaptations of Thomas Harris novels. Um, Manhunter or Red Dragon and Silence of the I Lambs. I was thinking
1: Silence of the Lambs. And, and
0: the, you know, the earlier episodes of the Hannibal TV show when it was still, like, a weird police procedural and not, like, a bizarre homoerotic art movie turned into a TV show. <laughs> but, yeah, it's it's very much, when I was watching it, I was thinking, this is... If you had a, like, 1930s version of Silence of the Lambs, this would be what it is.
1: Yeah, it's more akin to Silence of the Lambs than Jekyll and Hyde, which is number one still.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, you keep saying that you found the movie very factual, is the word you're using. The word I wrote down to, I think, say the same thing is I said it was a very adult movie. Mm. Not in, like, the, like, bow wow oh, kind of sense, but, like, the story is taken very seriously, mm-hmm. and like emotional moments, like uh, Diane having to identify the body of her dad in the morgue, are played straight. You know, it doesn't have this same throwaway Saturday matinee. These aren't really people. None of this is really happening. Kind of feeling that we've been seeing creep into the horror genre since 1934, right? It. it this feels like a movie for adults. You know, instead of something for the kitties. So that's that's sort of, I guess, my way of saying I, I, I identified the same things that mm-hmm. I think you were identifying in this movie.
1: Yeah. Speaking of Diane, she's great. Okay, I was wondering what your take
0: on her was, because, like, I thought she was cool, you know, because um, her and Inspector Holt kind of established, like, a partnership where Holt's like, oh, do you think you could go into danger for me? And she's like, absolutely. And, like... You know, they're totally with that. But she also does fall into the, like, gets tied up and, like, used as, like, the damsel in distress kind of thing, too.
1: Yeah, but in a Lois Lane type of way. Okay, sure. Yeah. yeah
0: I understand that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciated the actress Greta Gint. Uh, she, I think, did really good. Um, Like, it really struck me with that scene when she's identifying her father.
0: Yeah, you just, you weren't, you aren't expecting that level of acting. Like, she didn't need to play the scene that well, you know?
1: Yeah, and then she did. Yeah. When she's discovering these, like, little clues while working at the home, and then trying to hide the fact that she found this from either Orloff or Dearborn. Um, <clears throat> the same person. Yes. I don't know, I think she just did a really good job. I like how headstrong she is. I like how motivated she is um, because, like, she wants to find the murderer of her father. I, I really like that. Um, and it made me think back to when we were comparing The Man Who Changed His Mind mm-hmm. and The Man who, They Could Not Hang. Yeah. Because The Man Who Changed His Mind, whew, these long titles, uh, that was from 1936 from Britain yeah. and had, like, this great female character loved her. And then when they basically made the same type of movie, but in the States with the men they could not hang, little disappointed with the treatment of the female characters.
0: Yeah. And we were trying to figure out, we didn't have enough information to determine whether that was like a cultural thing of a difference between the UK and the US, or if it was just a one-off, right? Yeah. And so seeing that kind of um, stronger female character again here It makes me wonder if there was something in the way British media was portraying their women at this time where, you know, they still, like, she still needs a man, right, to come and rescue her. She's still, like, a romantic interest for that man, but she's not, like, an idiot, and she's also not, um, you know, even though she screams when she's in danger, she's not a coward,
1: Mm -hmm. and
0: there's something very kind of british about that about like you know there's this other thing in the movie at one point where they run into a policewoman at scotland yard headquarters and uh, o'reilly being from chicago has like no idea what this is and is like confused by the entire like concept of it reacts to it in a very like misogynist kind of way and you know it's it's one of the film's running gags of like O'Reilly being a shitty cop. That like Holt sort of holds it against him. But it falls again into this trend that you're identifying of like this slightly more competent view of women. Mm-hmm. Or rather, depiction of competent women.
1: Yeah, I'd be kinda of curious to look more into like British cinema to see if this is like ongoing in terms of, like, mm-hmm. like a reoccurring thing? Is it just, like, in these one-off films that we happen to be watching? Because mm-hmm. we are kind of, you know, cherry-picking films, yeah, right? Yeah, um But that's for a different podcast.
0: Sure. Lugosi's very good. Yes. In this role. It, it really utilizes his skill for playing murderous, vengeful megalomaniacs. Yeah. That's basically his type.
1: Yeah. I mean, we'll discuss in ranking whether we rank this as a horror film or not. And knowing how Bella's agent wanted him to move away from horror,
0: mm-hmm. I
1: wonder if they thought maybe this was more crime than horror.
0: Yeah, I I, I think... Well, and it, it gives him a little bit of range, too. um Like, he gets to play a few different things here. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I wonder about that. Certainly in the States, when it got re-released as the human monster, it was advertised as horror. When you look at the American posters... The central image of the American poster is the face of Jake, but like, oddly enough, it sort of looks more like as if it's Bella, like yeah. as if it's Bella wearing the makeup for Jake, like as if that's how they're trying to sell you on it, um, which is you know typical of this era, false advertising. <laughs> for me, Lagosi's role in here felt like it harkened back to like murders in the room morgue, is Definitely. what it reminded me of the most. In fact, in a lot of ways, the entire movie reminded me of Murders in the Rue Morgue. Um, you know, it feels like a modernization, you know, going from 1800s Paris to 1930s London, but we've still got, you know, a mad doctor doing experiments, bodies getting dumped in the river, the detective and his bumbling sidekick, and the threatened young woman who needs to be saved. Like, it's very similar, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, in terms of plot points, in, in
0: terms of like basic structure that you're yeah. like, not in terms of how it's actually shot or what the emphases are.
1: Yeah, because <laughs> there's nothing about like fears of evolution
0: in this. Well, and if we want to talk about what the emphases in this movie are on, honestly, more than anything, this movie feels like it's a propaganda film for Scotland Yard. <laughs> Yeah. Like, over and over again, we are shown how competent, capable, and, like, nigh-infallible the detectives of the yard are. You know, they have great hunches that are backed up by solid evidence and uh, witness testimony, and they work with minimal violence and force, and, like, everything's achieved, like, totally above board, you know, they're, they're patient, they're methodical, and all along the way, we are having this emphasized to us because it's contrasted with O'Reilly, the American cop who's shown as boorish, flippant, not really especially dedicated to the job, irreverent, uh, sexist, and most of all, he's quick to violence. Mm -hmm. You know, he's like impatient to bring out his gun and start shooting things.
1: Yeah. (laughs) He like brings out the baton. He's like, yeah, I'll make him talk. Just give me two minutes.
0: Yeah. And they're like, we don't do that here. Like we don't, shoot people, and we don't, like, beat people up, and we don't, like, do any of this stuff. We just, like, analyze clues and things, and, like, trick people. If this movie didn't get a payoff from Scotland Yard, like, it should have. (laughs) Uh, I mean, the first, it's weird. It, like, the thing that makes me suspicious is that the first scene begins with, like, I don't know, the the, the older, chief. yeah, I don't know what they're called for Scotland Yard, right? But, like, the whatever, the commissioner or the constable <laughs> or whatever. I don't know what the Scotland Yard yeah, yeah, version yeah. is. But he's talking about how, like, the public criticizes the police and is, like, really down on them all the time. And then the rest of the movie is basically showing, step by step, how they are beyond any criticism. <laughs> so, like, it just really makes me wonder about, like how involved Scotland Yard was with the making of this movie. Yeah, it's just it's just it just that it's really going out of its way.
1: Mhm. Do you want to move on to ranking? Yeah, so I'm inclined
0: to say that this should not be considered a horror movie. Okay. Um it has horror elements like Silence of the Lambs does, but I don't consider Silence of the Lambs to be a horror movie, which is, you know, I recognize that that's a take because I think it it popularly <laughs> Gets considered a horror movie, but I don't think it is, and therefore I don't think this is. I think in both films, the emphasis is more on the intrepid hero hunting down the killer with a climactic showdown. Both films really fit more accurately into the thriller category, in my opinion. Like, this movie has horror ish bits, but, you know, so do a lot of movies. And I don't think that that necessarily means that it's horror, even if it has those kind of, um, using those elements. I just think that structurally speaking, it feels more just like it's police procedural or it's thriller. So while I liked Dark Eyes of London quite a bit, my take is that it doesn't
1: belong on the list. I disagree. I I thought you would. (laughs) That's why I was like, oh, this is going to be a good episode. Um, Yeah, I feel like we should consider it horror- not just because it has the H rating, as you kind of explained in the opening, why that doesn't automatically make it horror, but I think this is a bit of a an adaptation of the genre. It's still using some of the horror genre tropes, I guess, of Bella Lugosi and monstrous killer, deformed killer, and I think... It's using those tropes and the horror genre as a jumping off point for a police procedural. Which, as you kind of said earlier, that's not really a genre yet. It makes sense that they're jumping off of some other genre in order to make that movie. So this is kind of more of an outcropping for me. Um, I do think it's something interesting that it's jumping off of horror rather than film noir. Um, But I don't know where film noir is in the UK, and if it has quite the same distinction as we seem to have in the US at this time.
0: Yeah, I feel like film noir, for one thing, has always felt very American to me. Mm -hmm. Like, you see it adapted into other countries, but, like, it's so quintessentially American because it's so quintessentially about, like, urban corruption, Mm -hmm. right? And also, like, it's 1939, it's still really early on for film noir at this point. But, um... See, I, I sort of see the movie as, like, the opposite of what you're seeing. Because I think you're seeing a horror movie that's bringing in police procedural elements to kind of change things up a bit. And what I'm kind of seeing is, like, a police procedural that's bringing in horror elements to change things up a bit.
1: No, I see it that way. Okay. Because it's still bringing in horror elements, we can see it as the genre kind of morphing into this new branch. hmm You know?
0: Like, I definitely, I see your point with that. What I worry about is establishing a precedent where, like, every movie that has, like, I don't know, like a big, ugly, monstrous henchman murdering people in shadowy scenes becomes horror automatically, right? Like, the Rocketeer isn't horror, you know?
1: but I mean, like, that's why this is kind of the first one that we're seeing, and that's why I would consider it an outgrowth. Mm -hmm. But any future ones that kind of fit this mold of police procedural, but, you know, monstrous dude doing the killings, that would kind of continue with that outcrop. We don't need to actually pay attention to it, right? It's like when you do a family tree, most people kind of stick to, like, the main central line. They don't worry about, like, the stepbrother twice removed adopted sister. Sure, sure, sure. I, I, I see what you're saying.
0: Like, the idea that this should be included for the sake of, you know, saying here's a point where things diverged. Mm-hmm. And then we don't need to, like, necessarily follow that diversion to say that, like, you know, oh, like, this Dick Tracy movie from the 40s, like, this is horror because the bad guy's a monster, right? Like...
1: Yeah, that's yeah. exactly what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: I mean, I guess I'm willing to allow
1: for that. Because, like, if you think about this movie in comparison with Mystery of the Wax Museum... Right. ...where we still kind of follow a central person... It's a reporter in Mystery of the Wax Museum. but There's a lot of cops in that movie, too, though. Yeah. Following and investigating this murder mystery type thing. Right. Mystery of the Wax Museum is definitely horror, in my opinion, and it's obviously on the list. And I think that's kind of like an early, maybe, prototype of what turns into, like, the film noir stuff. For sure. Because of that, like, you know, witty...
0: Yeah, yeah. Quick
1: talking. Yeah, yeah. Wah, wah, wah. Yeah,
0: Yeah, 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 yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> Um, And I think this is, like, the British version of that.
0: Yeah, I see what you're saying. Like, part of me is always reluctant whenever we have a hero, like, a central heroic figure as competent as Inspector Holt to, like, say it's horror. Because, like, if there's a through line to horror movies so far for me up to this point, it's that like the central male protagonists are useless. <laughs> um, so I that that's one of the things that like immediately sets like sets my alarm bells ringing. Going like wait a minute, there's a competent hero. This is not horror. Um, <laughs> but I I, I I understand your argument. Um, yeah. And and I'm you know we also we were pretty harsh on some of our more recent British films. We took Todd Slaughter off the list.
1: Like this is definitely more horror than the Todd Slaughter films.
0: Yeah, I mean. A lot of this movie almost reminded me of a better made, you know, version of face at the window where we, where we've got like, you know, the cops and the investigation and I'll prove. And you know, there's a weird dude who's being controlled by someone else to go out and kill people. And it has that very like pulp adventure structure of like, you know, we got to chase after the guy to his hideout and get the girl and blah, blah, blah. Right. So, but this is definitely better than that. I mean, the only thing I want to say then, if we are going to rank it is that, I like this movie quite a bit, but because I think it's not fully a horror movie, I don't think it will rank as well as like it would if it really was more a horror movie than a police procedural. So I don't think the ranking, you know, fully expresses how much I liked this movie because we rank based on how good of a horror movie it is, right? Yeah. So that's all I kind of want to be clear about if we're going to go into ranking at this point.
1: Yeah, and with that acknowledgement, where I'm kind of feeling it goes is right in and around Mystery of the Wax Museum at 37. I was also looking at Murders in the Room Morgue, because um, mm-hmm. I kind of caught the same similarities that you found. So between Murders in the Room Morgue and Mystery of the Wax Museum, there's Dracula's Daughter, the 1935 student of Prague, Mark of the Vampire, Mystery of the Wax Museum.
0: mm uh-huh.
1: And I feel like this could, you know, below Mystery of the Wax Museum is the devil doll and the mummy. Right. And I feel like the Dark Eyes of London could either go above or below Mystery of the Wax Museum, depending on how you're feeling with the horror elements. What, what are you thinking about this range? I think,
0: I think you were very clever, like, identifying Murders in the Room Morgan and Mystery of the Wax Museum as, like, the closest, like, genetic cousins of this movie on the list. I think that's very apt. Um, it's obviously, you know, not as horror as Murders in the Room No, no.
1: Um,
0: I do think the argument could be made that it's a bit more horror than Mystery of the Wax Museum was, maybe. I don't know. They're very comparable. The real difference between the two, other than the Technicolor, is that one's American and one's British, and the sensibilities come off very different because of that. Like, Mystery of the Wax Museum is funnier and is quicker paced and, like, you know, it has all that, but that's because it's, like, in New York or whatever. And <laughs> this movie, you know, has that very, like, as you said, factual, like...
1: Step-by-step.
0: Step-by-step thing that feels to me very British. It's very much that, like, you know, stiff upper lip. Like, let's not get anyone hysterical here. Like, let's just, you know, calm. like, do our jobs, you know, kind of thing. So it's, it's really hard for me to judge. My, I guess what I need to establish first is this versus Devil Doll. Like, Devil Doll's kind of a a whole thing.
1: Yeah. We described it as three separate movies that had a central character kind of linking them, and d- he didn't do a super great job at it. Yeah, Devil... Yeah, because, like... Has the drama, has the horror, and has...
0: Like, the crime-revenge story, Yeah, basically, right? Is this more horror than Devil Doll? Like, is there... You know, we're, we're looking at two different movies that both don't 100% commit to the genre do we feel like dark eyes of london like percentage wise (laughs) uh like is more horror than devil doll was where in devil doll the horror was almost just kind of like a a means to the end to be the glue to glue together this like family estrangement movie and this like weird bizarre crime movie and then in this movie the horror is something to give a little bit of added spice to what would otherwise just be like a straight mystery thriller
1: yeah it's a hard call for sure
0: because I'm, I'm, what i'm what I'm sort of getting at is I think at the end of the day, it's not going above Dracula's daughter for me No, no Dracula's daughter is he doesn't know what it's talking about, but it's talking about something and <laughs> you know um then there's student of Prague from 35 which we had kind of mixed feelings about, but I think is probably a bit more horror than this is mm. Then you get to Mark of the Vampire, where it's all... Halloween. Yeah, it's very Halloween, but it's also all, like, a Scooby-Doo ending. Yeah. So it's, it's really tough. Um, my gut feeling, though, is below Mark of the Vampire, above with Mystery of the Wax Museum. Yeah. That's kind of my gut feeling, but I could also see it going below Mystery of the Wax Museum, above the Devil Doll.
1: This is my predicament as well.
0: So that's why I wanted to, you know, talk about It versus Devil Doll or It versus Like, like just trying to feel this out a bit more. Because it really just is, like, a very British version of Mystery of the Wax Museum. Not story-wise, but, like, <laughs> structurally.
1: Ooh, this is hard. I mean, Mystery of the Wax Museum has Lionel at will.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, and this has Bella Lugosi.
1: Yeah. Like, in Mystery of the Wax Museum, you see that one statue melt in fire and it looks really fucking freaky. Man. Well and like
0: Lionel Atwell's like face comes apart and he's got the like burnt up face underneath.
1: Yeah. And uh still a damsel in distress, you know.
0: But it's Faye Ray. Yeah. I don't know. I I, I kinda like this better.
1: Than Mystery?
0: Yeah, like I don't know which is the better horror film. I'm having a really hard time with that because they're both kinda just mystery thrillers with horror elements yeah. at the end of the day. But as movies, I kind of like this more. Okay. I think I'd, I'd be more into watching this again than Mystery of the Wax Museum. I mean, for me, the thing I love about Mystery of the Wax Museum is the look of the movie, because it's got that like two-tone technicolor art deco thing
1: yeah, going on. Yeah, that's pretty right? sweet. I'm willing to go with your gut feel of putting this above Mystery of the Wax Museum.
0: Okay. This is the most ambiguous I've felt about a ranking in some time. Like, I'm just not sure what the right decision is. But my, my this is what my gut says. So that's, I think, what we'll do. Okay. So then entering the list at number 37 is The Dark Eyes of London uh, from 1939, directed by Walter Summers.
1: If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you will see links to the other films that we've talked about in this episode. And uh, you will also find an appeals box there where if you have a problem with where we've ranked this film or any other film, you can submit an appeal and we can reconsider everything. Our whole lives. (laughs) Uh, The whole premise of the podcast.
0: What are we even doing here?
1: (laughs) If Tumblr isn't your bag, you can also reach us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can talk to us on Twitter at underscore ScreamScene.
0: scene Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. It is available through most any podcast app uh, through our RSS feed. Some things that you can do to help the show along include rating and reviewing us on whatever service you use to listen to us. Those sorts of things help the show get found by new listeners. Uh, The other thing that helps the show get found is talking about the show. Whether that's in space with your flesh friends or online uh, on Twitter or whatever social media you like to poison your brain with. <laughs> a, another way that you can help the show out is through financial support. As we mentioned at the top of the show, you can head to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast to become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. At the $5 level, patrons receive weekly bonus audio. Uh, cut content from past episodes, Uh, juicy tidbits that weren't good enough for you to hear the first time around, but are good (laughs) enough for you to hear the second time around. (laughs) And then at the $10 level, there's uh, monthly horror short fiction written by
1: me. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, it's
0: funny that we've been talking about, you know, the overlap of film noir and horror, because we're kind of going back to that Neck of the Woods, we're watching a Warner Brothers horror movie, which always kind of has a bit of that overlap. Mm-hmm. And it's starring Humphrey Bogart. Ah! So it's 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 the return of Dr. X.
1: <laughs> Is he Dr. X?
0: He might be.
1: So no Lionel Atwill? No
0: Lionel Atwill.
1: The previous Dr. X? That's correct. So Humphrey Bogart plays Dr. Y. <laughs>
0: Uh, listen, I I can't answer that question.
1: Okay. You will answer it next week, creatures of the night.
0: Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but next week.
1: (laughs) Bye! Bye!